Well, uh, the end of the world is back on the agenda. I guess it's one of the consequences of some of the environmental discussions that have been around recently. Now, people again are very concerned about the end of the world. Uh, the film The Day After Tomorrow was released uh, a few years back and it pictures a kind of cataclysmic uh, destruction brought about by, uh, by climate change with uh, kind of ice spreading all over the world. The end of the world is coming. And it is. The end of the world is indeed coming. It is on the way. But as concerned as Christians should be about environmental issues, the world will not end in that way. Jesus Christ is coming back. That's the great hope of the New Testament. It's the climax of everything that the Bible looks forward to. The end of the world as Jesus returns. And yeah, to be honest, as Christians, it's quite easy to forget about it, not to think about it an awful lot. Perhaps if we're here and we wouldn't call ourselves Christians, maybe the thought hasn't even crossed our minds that the world will end with Jesus returning. It is something that we can neglect or forget. But C.S. Lewis has a challenge for us. He says this, It seems impossible to retain in any recognisable form our belief in the divinity of Christ, and the truth of Christian revelation while abandoning or even persistently neglecting the promised and threatened return. The return of Jesus Christ is central to the New Testament. It is central to what it means to be a Christian. So why do we neglect it? Why do we forget it? Well, I suspect it might be that we're turned off by people who talk quite a lot about it. one of the things we've been doing at Woody Road is taking a team out to Kenya for the, uh, the last few years. And uh, it was last summer, actually, whilst I was in Kenya, that I uh, turned on the uh, television in the place we we're staying. And there was a Christian program. It's quite common, actually, in the middle of Kenya to find a Christian program on mainstream television. But there was the man. He had a sharp suit and gave us the kind of idea that Jesus would return. But the next 15 minutes, frankly, made my head spin as we worked through the kind of charts, the graphs, the verses in the Bible, the tribulation, the rapture, the millenniums, all carefully applied to the politics of today. Frankly, I was confused completely by the end of it. And so there can be that sense of, well, you know, if the Lord's return is all about that kind of stuff, we can't understand that. We ignore it, we neglect it. As I was preparing for this, actually, I looked across my uh, bookcase back at home and found a variety of books on creation, on the cross, on the Holy Spirit. Frankly, I couldn't find a single book in my bookcase about the Lord's return. It's just not one we talk about very often. Let's be candid, it's maybe not one that impacts our life a great deal. But Paul wouldn't want us to be in that position. You see, Paul, as he writes these Thessalonians towards the end of his letter, is concerned that they are not ignorance, that they are not confused. He wants them to be clear and certain in their minds about the Lord's return. You see, for the Thessalonians, the concern was this. They'd seen Christians in their congregation who had died, and there was that sense of, well, what happens to them now? Will they miss out when the Lord comes back if they're not alive? Will he still be able to take take them to be with him in glory? Uh, There was confusion amongst the Thessalonians, and he wants them to be clear and certain in their minds. 
Because what Paul says all the way through this letter, which I, I guess you've seen if you've been coming to the series, what you'll have seen is that the Lord's return, the idea that Jesus will come back, is crucial to Christian living. As you find right in chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about the essence of being a Christian, the very reality of what it means to be a Christian, is to turn from idols to the living God and to wait for Jesus to come from heaven. What is it to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to be somebody who's waiting, looking forward to Jesus coming back. Or again, at the end of chapter 2, Paul says that the Lord's return is that which motivates him to do the role that he has. Why does Paul conduct his role as an apostle? Why does he try and form churches and grow churches? Well, it is so that he will have a joy and glory when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, Paul's going to be so excited because there will be the Thessalonians, those people that he preached the gospel to. And there's an excitement there. But if the Lord wasn't coming back, what would be the point? The Lord's return gives Paul this goal for his ministry. And then he ends the letter by talking about the Lord's return as the, the kind of goal of holiness. You know, Paul prays that the Thessalonians' spirit, soul and body will be kept blameless when at the coming of our Lord Jesus. You know, Paul wants these Thessalonians to be godly, as it were, when Jesus Christ comes back. Just see how all the way through the letter, Paul is anxious that the fact that Jesus is coming back will change the way they live. So what I want us to do this morning is just to get clear in our thinking. What is it going to be like when the Lord returns? And what difference will it make? It's supposed to make a difference, so we need our thinking to be as clear as it possibly can be. So two things I want to give us this morning as a result of the Lord's return. A comfort and a challenge. So firstly, a comfort from chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. You see, these Thessalonians had experienced the death of loved ones amongst them, and they've been grief-stricken. You know, death always does that, doesn't it? Death leaves us struck by grief. But the Thessalonians have the added confusion in their minds. You know, the Lord was supposed to come back. What's going to happen to these people who died? Now, let's be honest, that might not be an issue for most of us. I guess most of us didn't lie awake last night thinking about what happens to Christians who've died when the Lord returns. Maybe it wasn't the thing that kept you uh, uh, awake yesterday evening. But nevertheless, we can, I guess, understand the impact that death has, can't we? You know, the relationships that mean so much to us, suddenly being torn apart, no longer being able to communicate with those we love, perhaps a sense of loss and loneliness. You know, some of us, perhaps the older ones amongst us, will have experienced that. Being candid, probably of all the things that frighten me most, it would be the thought of somebody I love dying suddenly. Occasionally that thought terrifies me. What if somebody I love dies? Would I be able to cope? Would I be able to deal with that? Because death inevitably brings sorrow, even to Christians. Actually, Paul himself in Philippians chapter 2 talks about his relief at Epaphroditus not dying because otherwise he would have experienced sorrow upon sorrow. You know, Christians grieve when people die. But, Paul says, in the case of the death of a Christian, there is still hope. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men 
who have no hope. You see, Paul is saying that the Lord's return makes a difference to how we view the death of Christians. Oh, we grieve, but Paul says we grieve with hope. And hope here means something more than what we tend to use it as. You know, hope tends to be that kind of vaguely optimistic wish. You know, I hope it's a nice day, which this summer has been a vaguely optimistic wish. You know, that's normally what we talk about in hope. But in the New Testament, hope is this clear, certain, definite confidence. Paul says we have this biblical hope that there is something wonderful for the future. And so we grieve, but with hope. Because Paul says that hope is grounded in the fact that the Lord will return, verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul says when Jesus returns, he will bring with him those who have died as Christians. The Christian belief is that when people die, they do go to be with G- in Jesus' presence in glory. That is where those who have died with faith in Christ are now. When Jesus returns, he will bring them with him. That's the Christian hope. Now, let's be honest, the doubter might say, well, that's all quite convenient, isn't it? You know, it's a nice way to kind of ease the grief in death, to say one day you're going to see these people again. How do we know? How can we be sure that this will happen? Well, see the evidence that Paul gives in verse 14. He says, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring those who died with him. You know, imagine I said to you, well, we can't really know whether a human being can climb Everest. You'd say to me, Andy, that's crazy. Of course we know that a human being can climb Everest. It's been done. Well, that would be my response to those who say this is simply easy comfort. You know, how can we have confidence that we'll see believers who've died again? We can have confidence because it's been done already. Jesus died and rose again. Therefore, those who've died with faith in Christ are safe, they're secure, and Jesus will bring them with him when he comes back. It's perfectly simple for him to do that. He's alive. Of course he can bring back those who've died with faith in him. So what exactly will happen? What will happen on that day when the Lord returns? Let's have a look at verses 15 to 17 and just bring, pick out five elements as to what will happen. Firstly, the Lord will come. Verse 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. Can you imagine this? You know, Jesus will appear in a way that is evident to the whole world. You know, just think about all the different noises that are going to be heard. You pick out the noises. We've got a loud command. We've got a voice of the archangel. We've got a trumpet call of God. Have to admit, if you like your music nice and quiet, don't be around for the Lord's return. It's going to be a huge event. Everybody will see it. Everybody will hear it. The Lord will come and it will be completely unmissable and unmistakable. And then secondly, we know that with the Lord will come those who have died in Christ. Those who have fallen asleep in him will come with the Lord Jesus. And then there will be that noise, that trumpet call, which will act as a summons to raise the dead from the ground. And they will rise... It's difficult to work through, but the impression at least is that the souls of those who died will be be united 
with their new resurrection bodies. And that, that will happen first. In a sense, Paul's point is those who died aren't going to miss out. They'll get their new bodies first, he's saying. And then fourthly, those of us who are still alive will be raised. Verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And then finally, as it were, there will be this great reunion. Christians who are alive at the Lord's return. Christians who've died before the Lord's return. And all of us will be there and we will meet the Lord. Do you see that, verse 17? And so we will meet the Lord in the air and we will be with the Lord forever. That's the great hope, this great reunion. Christians who died, Christians who are still alive, all together, and there at the centre will be the Lord. There we will see him. Just over the page, actually, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul describes this day as the day when Jesus comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who believe. That's what this day will be about. It will be this great reunion and all of us will be marvelling at Jesus Christ, at his beauty, at his glory, at his power. We will marvel at him. I don't know, are you looking forward to it? You know, the Christian sort of knows the Lord's presence now, don't we? But on the times you doubt, you know, is he really with me? Then we will see him. Faith will turn to sight. We will see him face to face. Are you looking forward to it? John Piper puts it like this. Imagine being able to enjoy what is infinitely enjoyable with unbounded energy and passion forever. And that's what this great reunion is like. It is enjoying the best thing in the world, the Lord Jesus, forever and ever. And you won't get tired, you won't get bored. We'll simply enjoy this great reunion. That is our great hope. That is what will happen when the Lord returns. And so Paul says, therefore, verse 18, encourage each other with these words. Keep reminding each other of these things. Keep reminding each other that the best is yet to come. That we have something wonderful to look forward to. There is a day coming. And Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant about it. He wants to be certain and confident about it. What are the implications of all of this? The implication has to be that we as Christians can have real confidence especially in the face of death. Now, I have to be honest, I am conscious of a certain agony as I preach this. I know that there will be those of us here this morning who have loved ones who are not Christians, maybe who've lost loved ones who are not Christians. Uh, And being honest this morning, this passage doesn't actually have anything to say about that issue. We simply trust that the judge of all the earth will do right. And we look to a God who cares and comforts us in our sorrows. Furthermore, and I find it hard to say this, but it's true, that actually when we enjoy the new heavens and the new earth, actually the absence of people we would want to be there won't affect us. I know it's hard to say that, but in the new heavens and the new earth there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow, there's no more sadness. We will still delight in being there. 
But I guess for many of us, those we love most are Christians. Some of them will have died. I simply want to say to us this morning, we will see them again. That's the hope that we have. We will see them again. This passage means a lot to me, actually. I read it at my grandfather's funeral about ten years ago. He was a believer, he was a Christian man. And I remember reading this passage and seeing my grand's face through tears at losing him, nevertheless shining with a bright hope. I will see him again. We will be together again. And we'll be together in the presence of the Lord. And it also answers the issue of the fear that I, I mentioned earlier. You know, it may be that we have kind of friends or perhaps people we're married to who mean an awful lot to us. And, you know, there can be that question, perhaps especially as we get older, what if one of them dies first? You know, will I be able to cope with that grief? Well, Paul says this, the answer is, yes, we will grieve, but there won't be despair. You know, that's what I remember actually, reading that passage at the funeral. In that sense, there was grief, there were tears, but there was none of the despair, in a sense, that's just so gut-wrenching. No, there's confidence, grief but no despair. Why? Because there's that great reunion that all of us are looking forward to. It will happen. And actually the same goes for our own death. What happens? Well, we simply await the day when the Lord Jesus returns. There will be that reunion. As the old hymn puts it, the sky, not the grave, is our goal. That's where we're heading. It's great hope, isn't it? The Lord Jesus coming back. And that's the huge comfort. Because he's coming back, death is not the last word. And so Paul is saying, we don't want you to be ignorant about these things. We need to know this, don't we? One of the, uh, the kind of things you have to be careful of flying out to Kenya is the danger of actually finishing a film or kind of a film being cut off halfway through. You know what it's like if you've been on long distance flights. You kind of get to watch a film, but you have to time it perfectly. Because at some point when you go down for the kind of landing, you know, they turn all the kind of system off. And so you've got to work out, actually, have I got enough time to watch this film before it gets cut off? Because there's nothing worse, isn't there, than watching half a film. You ever have that kind of experience? It's just that kind of, it's just so dissatisfying. It's so kind of frustrating. You know, what's going to happen? What's going on? Well, actually, the Christian faith, without this truth about the Lord's return, being ignorant about the Lord's return, is like this half-finished film. You know, without the Lord's return, you have Christians suffering with no rewards. You have Jesus apparently risen, but somehow having abandoned the earth somewhere. You have all these promises of a new earth, of the lion living with the lamb, but they're not going to be kept. And you have those who are dead seemingly abandoned. You know, without the Lord's return, all of this is incomplete, but the good news is this, Jesus is coming back. It's all going to be fulfilled. And so we must not be ignorant. The Lord's return gives us a great comfort. But secondly, the Lord's return gives us a challenge. You know, I guess the obvious follow-up question is this. When? You know, this day, when's it going to happen? Well, see how Paul deals with the issues of dates. He reminds them in verse 1 that he's already told them about this. And he tells them that the one thing we're certain of in terms of the date is that it will come when people don't expect. If you know very well, verse 2, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, it will be a surprise, it will be unexpected. 
few years ago. Uh, I made the mistake of, it was in the days before um, iPods and things, I made the mistake of leaving a kind of portable CD player on the, uh, the passenger seat of my car uh, overnight. And to be honest, I just left it there and thought relatively little of it and slept quite soundly and then woke up going downstairs trying to get in my car to drive to a meeting. And I remember seeing that glass all over the ground and you kind of peer in through the car and where there used to be a front window you discover there isn't a front window anymore and where there used to be a CD player on the kind of seats there wasn't a CD player anymore. And I remember that real sense of shock actually. I don't know whether people have experienced burglary and that's just that sense of just shock. It's just not what you expect. You expect to go down and find everything just as it always was. And Paul says that will be exactly what it will be like when the Lord returns. You know, people won't be expecting it. People will be saying peace and safety. That's to say life will just be going on smoothly. You know, people will be eating, drinking, going to work, doing DIY, watching the rugby. You know, it'll all just be going on as it ever was. And then bang, it will happen. And the Lord will return. And it will be completely unexpected. It will be like labour. Uh, Paul says, I know slightly less about that, but uh, you know, that sense that uh, apparently kind of the, uh, the, the person who's pregnant, normally a woman, is, um, kind of, is kind of sitting there, you know, in a sense life's going along reasonably smoothly at least, and then it happens, the labour pains arrive, and it's not quite what's expected. You know, it's a shock, it's sudden. And uh, the tragedy, of course, is that what Paul says is that it will bring destruction, verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. People won't be ready. They won't have a relationship with Jesus. And actually they'll end up meeting Jesus, who's the ruler of all things, as their enemy, rather than as their friends. Paul says that destruction will come. It matters actually that we're ready. It matters that we know Jesus before we see him. But for the Christian, Paul says that it shouldn't surprise us. Paul says that we should not be surprised, verse 4, as though this will come as a thief. Because after all, we know that it's coming. We know that there is a day when the thief will arrive. Paul goes on to say that we're not in the darkness. You know, people in the darkness are those who are confused. You can't see in the darkness. Whereas when the light is on, you can see things clearly. Paul says we can see clearly. We know what the situation is. We know that one day the Lord Jesus will return. We're sons of the light. It's not darkness for us. And so Paul says we're to behave in a way that is appropriate, verse 6. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. You see, unless you're a student, night is when you sleep, day is when you're alert. That's the point. We're people in the day, so we're to be alert. We're to live in a way that is focused, that has a clear idea of the reality of the world, that Jesus is coming back. We're to behave appropriately. Again, Paul says something similar, verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith as a breastplate. You see the point? Because we know that this day is coming, because we belong to the light, we should behave differently. You see, that's why we need, again, this clarity. That's why we mustn't be ignorant about the Lord's return. 
You see, if the second coming drops out of our thinking, then we lose the key motivation for Christian living. If we're ignorant about the Lord's return, if we don't think about it, then actually the Christian life will just become something like this. We're grateful for the fact that Jesus died for us, and so we should live as a Christian. That will be what the Christian life will be. To have clearly in our minds that Jesus is coming back, and so we behave appropriately as a result of it. You see, that's what matters to Paul. Actually, what matters to the Lord Jesus is that we are ready ready for our judgment, ready for our lives to be examined. And the question actually each one of us has to face this morning is this. What impact does the return of Jesus Christ have on my life? That's the question, isn't it? What impact does the fact that Jesus will return have on my life? Does it have any impact at all? That was the question that challenged me actually as I was preparing this. Does this make any difference to me? Well, what impact should it have? Two things to pick up. Paul says that in view of the Lord's return, we should be self-controlled. Do you see how he says that? He says it twice, actually, in verse 6. Let us be alert and self-controlled. And again, he says it in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. You see, in many ways, this should be the difference between those of us who've got the Lord's return to look forward to and those who don't. You see, naturally, in a sense, self, that is our desires, governs what we do. It affects the money we spend. Basically, we ask the question, what do I want? Often it affects our attitude towards things like sexual morality. How can I be satisfied? Often it can impact the way we have relationships with each other. How can I get the most out of, what, how can I get the most out of this relationship? You see, effectively, life can be run by our desires. But to be a Christian, to be living in the light of the second coming, is for those desires to be under control. Actually to be under control with something bigger and better. You see, we control ourselves by the reality that Jesus Christ will come back. Do you see, there's something higher, something that says, okay, I'm going to control the way I live. Why? Because I'm living in the light of the fact that Jesus will return one day. Or Paul says that in addition to being self-controlled, life now will be about developing faith and love and hope. You see that in verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and a hope for salvation as a helmet. It's the thing that Paul actually picked up right at the start of the letter. He thanks God for their faith and hope and love. These are the things that Paul sees as you know, essential Christianity, essential things to put in place to be ready for Jesus. Faith, that deepening sense of trust in Christ. Love, that growing concern for others. Hope, that increasing sense of looking forward to that day when Jesus returns. That's yeah, a good way of examining ourselves as to whether we really are living in the light of Christ's return. Is my faith growing? Is my trust in Christ developing? Uh, Is my love growing? Am I getting better at putting others' interests before my own? Is my hope growing? Am I making decisions increasingly by storing treasure in heaven rather than treasure in earth? And actually we're not really going to look at it this morning, but if you look at verses 12 to 28, you might get some more ideas as to what the practical implications of that are. 
so love within the church picked up in verses 12 to, uh, to 15 in terms of loving those in leadership responsibilities and then responding in an appropriate way to different groups of people. Or again, you might see faith developing in verses 16 to 18, that sense of thankfulness to Christ in all circumstances. I'll let you look at verses 12 to 28 in your own time to think actually about what the practical implications of that are. But the point is this, faith, hope and love, putting those things into practice will be the way that we prepare for the Lord Jesus to come back. Is it worth it? I mean, that's the final question. You know, is it going to happen? Is it worth pursuing those things? Oh, it is. In closing, Paul just says there is, if you like, a double lock on us. A double certainty that we have this hope. It's certain, verse 9, because of the will of God. We can have this hope because God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God has decided, it's good news, God has decided that those who trust in Christ will be saved rather than be on the receiving end of his anger. That is God's will for you if you're a Christian. It's wonderful, isn't it? There is that certain confidence, the will of God, that he's appointed us to receive salvation. But secondly, this future hope is certain because of the cross of Christ. The Lord Jesus died for us, verse 10, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Jesus died so that when he returns, we will be with him. Because he's died for us, there is absolutely nothing that will stop us enjoying his presence forever. Our sin won't keep us from it. Because he has died for us, eternity with him is certain. It's good news. The future is certain because of the will of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Keep reminding each other of these things. Keep asking each other, what difference does the Lord's return really make to our lives? Encourage one another and build each other up. Paul says that we must not be ignorant about the return of the Lord Jesus because he says it affects our attitude towards death and it affects the way we live now and we need to remind each other of it, to call one another, to keep living in the light of it. So here's the question, are you ready for the Lord Jesus to come back? Are you ready for him to come back? If the honest answer to that this morning is no, then actually that means we have business to do with the Lord even this morning. Lord, help me to learn to be self-controlled. Help me to put faith and love and hope into practice. Lord, help me to get ready. It may be even in a sense to get ready is, is actually to become a Christian. To say, Lord, at the moment I don't know you. But I want you to be my friend on that day when you return. But for those of us who are ready, for those of us who say, yes, I'm looking forward to this, then what we say is what Christians have said down the ages. Come, Lord Jesus.